Welcome to Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. We're currently doing a special series in which we spend time with a number of the speakers who we were fortunate to have grace our stage at the Wired Impact Sustainability event in London last November. Today, we're going to talk policy and regulation. Wait, wait before you flip over to another podcast. Let me try and persuade you why listening is going to be worth your time. So there are three things that all the speakers in this series agree are foundational. The science around climate and biodiversity is clear-cut, right? We are heading for planetary ecological collapse. There are variables in how or when this is going to happen, but there is broad agreement that direction of travel is clear. We've already passed five of the nine planetary boundaries. Secondly, we're not moving fast enough. We're simply not transforming human activity at the pace we need to. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about industry or finance or energy, we're not hitting even the modest targets that we're setting ourselves. And every moment we delay, the targets we must hit become larger and harder to reach. Thirdly, the only way we're going to reach these goals is through policy. We've seen recent examples of this in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act and in the EU's Green Deal. So how do we translate science into policy? How do we align governments and business? In today's episode, I speak with Alyssa Gilbert. Alyssa is the Director of Policy and Translation at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. The Grantham Institute is part of Imperial College in London, and Alyssa's role is crucial. She connects the research being done by academics across the university with policymakers and businesses. Organisations are getting ever more vocal about the need for certainty. In order to hit the targets they've set themselves and that they're declaring externally, they need to set baselines and build action-based timestamp plans that will accelerate the rate of change. Boards need certainty. They need to be able to set short-term benchmarks to deliver long-term goals. At the moment, organisations can talk about setting a climate-positive target or acting in ways that are nature-positive, but there are no clear frameworks in place. So how do we build them? Well, Alyssa has some ideas. Enjoy the conversation. So, Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. So, as I said in the intro, every single piece of credible academic research demonstrates that there is a climate crisis ongoing and we are not doing very well in our approach to it. Governments simply aren't moving fast enough. Why is that? Where's the gap, do you think? I mean, there are lots of reasons. I think that there is recognition, and particularly more in some places than others, that we really do need urgent action quickly. But it means changing some of the things we do and, you know, using new products in different ways, replacing some things like how we heat our homes or how we travel sometimes. And it basically means changing. It doesn't necessarily mean reducing or changing our quality of life, but in general, people find change quite difficult. <laughs> um, and at the heart of all of that is also maybe changing some of our infrastructure, some of the things that make it easy for us to make certain decisions. And, you know, those kind of infrastructure things, infrastructural investments, some of those things have been there for hundreds of years. <laughs> and so making changes there are particularly difficult. I guess what I'm driving at is you obviously, you know, speak to citizens, businesses, policymakers, academics. Everyone's kind of aligned around ultimate goals. So what I guess I don't quite understand is where this disconnect happens between 
the science, the agreed sort of approaches that we have to to formulate, or certainly the goals that we have, and actually what's happening within policy making that then can be put into practice. I mean, I think some of the tricky thing here is time frame. So our goals, our ultimate goals here are long term, and some of them are medium term. But many decisions are made in the short term, um, and many of the pressing things that individuals, businesses, and even government policymakers who have, you know, electoral cycles of about five years, the things that they feel are on a different time frame, despite their agreed long-term goals. So it can be very difficult to lock in serious commitments to short-term action and even medium-term action that delivers on long-term goals. It can always be tempting for leaders and individuals to say, okay, I'll do that next year or even in the next electoral cycle, or the next CEO will take care of that. And of course, we know that you need to lay the groundwork and do these things gradually for that kind of impact. But th- this timescale differential makes it really, really difficult. Beyond the timescale argument, is it the case that, is this around incentives, right, for lawmakers? Like fundamentally, the classic thing in London, right, would be, we call the ride-sharing bikes, we call them Boris bikes. That actually wasn't a Boris policy. That's his predecessor's policy. It's part of the, the challenge that we have here is that it's about attribution. People want their names on things. They want their statues. They want, And, and that, that we're not aligned around goals. Politicians are incentivized maybe in ways that aren't necessarily, as you say, long-term. They're incentivized to think about, okay, what can we get done in four years before the next electoral cycle? Yes, there's the time incentive. And then also, as you say, there's certain things that are attractive to politicians to do and other things they feel are less attractive. So having your name on a new exciting thing that you want to be associated with that you think is positive, like the Boris bikes, that's attractive to a politician. Certainly politicians like to be seen in hard hats contributing to new infrastructure projects. And some new infrastructure projects are really important in this area. So that's good news. But other things don't seem so exciting, like the long-term lack of investment we've had in energy efficiency. There's really nothing you can stand in front of that makes something seem more energy efficient. And similarly, important actions that can help incentivize people to shift their mode of transport to more public transportation, those kind of changing behaviors. They're not big one-off things that someone can stand in front of, put their name on, or wear a hard hat to. And that makes it a less immediately attractive proposition. So when you gave your presentation at Wide Impact, you outlined three real kinds of policy, right? There were standards of regulation, market mechanism, and sort of things related to innovation. So things we have to do in aviation or heavy industry, you mentioned steel and cement. I'm just wondering, can you just pass those three policy pillars for us and just talk us through them and and how the thinking on those develops and how then they are best implemented? You know, the very first kind of pillar are the ones that these are definitely the boring ones that aren't exciting to announce, but they're really important. So underlying regulatory standards helps us move the dial on things that happen every day, that get developed every day, and they yeah, increase the ability for some existing technologies to be rolled out. And the, some examples of these that have been really, really powerful already in the climate area are things like building standards and some planning regulation can be quite important to the ways in which buildings are able to become zero carbon and also resilient to the impacts of climate change. A less well-recognized important contributor to this is fuel efficiency standards in vehicles. That's something that's affected in particular in the US and also in the UK and in Europe. These kind of standards have actually pushed car manufacturers to 
reduce the impacts of those vehicles. You know, ultimately, we have very strong standards, things that ban a product. So, for example, the good kind of medium-term signal that our government gave about the removal of the ability to have new internal combustion engine cars in the UK. That is actually a kind of quite extreme regulation or standard. And that's immediately incentivized the automotive industry and also individuals, right? Because nobody wants to have a product they own that gets devalued that they can't resell. And these kind of standards are are really, really powerful in just moving things out into general commercial use. So that's kind of the first category. The second category that I spoke about is about market mechanisms and the kind of fundamental story behind what we call a market mechanism in policymaking is that one of the reasons why the environment is in quite a terrible position is that a lot of decisions are made on the basis of economic pressures and economic pressures. So wanting to buy things more cheaply, they don't basically include the signal of what your decision is doing to the environment. It's called an externality, this cost of your activity to the environment. Then people just make their decisions on the basis of other things and the market kind of drives that. So there's been a lot of thinking done about how can we use these quite powerful market forces to actually drive changes that we want to see. The most common example given of this is carbon pricing, carbon taxation. So that's an attempt to add in a price signal that shows you the value of what you're doing to the environment. But there are also quite complex systems that create entire markets out of goods for the environment. So for example, there's been a long time in planning a preparation of a, of a mechanism to reward people for avoided deforestation. That's quite complicated. How can you give someone a financial reward for permanently not deforesting something? And that's quite tricky, right? How can we do that? But it's a recognition that in the way that our economy is structured, markets are really powerful. And so we should be able to capture those. To so we're, we're, in that instance, we're incentivizing someone not to do something bad rather than doing something good. Exactly. And, that, and that's quite difficult to structure. I guess that kind of leads you into areas like, how do we get those with large reserves of, I don't know, fossil fuels to sequester them rather than, than burn them? And you get into quite an interesting kind of ethical argument there, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's right. And then also, you know, quite difficult questions about, you know, you've got a market, but where does the source of funding come for that market? Right. Who's going to pay for it? Where are you actually creating the value? Yeah. Is that, you know, ultimately some kind of government fund or some other sources? So this is definitely um, an area that's in conversation, particularly in relation to greenhouse gas removal, which is, as you were discussing. Yeah. And uh-huh. then, the, then, then the final pillar, things related to innovation. Yeah, exactly. So research and innovation. So the two examples I gave before, they're kind of mechanisms for how can we make the solutions that we already have, how can we help those be rolled out? How can we make them more successful? How can we ensure that more of the things that we know how to do happen? But there are some areas where we don't have the solutions yet. And you spoke about them already, some of them in passing. So it's very difficult for us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions fully in heavy industry and manufacturing. That's because some of those emissions come from the chemical processes themselves. And that's also because some of the things that we're doing in heavy industry require a lot, a lot of energy and power. And that can't always be delivered through renewable means. So we have to find new solutions for heavy industry. We know that there isn't really, at the moment, a fully sustainable solution to aviation. And air travel is important in a globalized world. So we need some innovation there. We already mentioned the need there's going to be to do some greenhouse gas removal. We need some innovation there. And then there are pockets of lots of areas where research is important. And then we also need innovation, again, thinking back to how can we make sure that some of the technical solutions that we already have can be used more effectively. So there's lots of innovation needed 
in the gaps between these different things, process innovation, new kinds of goods and services. How do we capture these things? So we do need to do more on research and innovation. And our experience and the academic literature shows that it takes quite a long time to move from invention to full-scale rollout of new ideas, decades and decades, even for things that we really love. Like it's taken, I think, four decades for the initial cathode ray TV to go from invention to being popular. And we know how popular TV is, right? So even more tricky sometimes for things where people don't have an immediate incentive to take it up. So we need to think about how we can speed up innovation and speed up particularly that scale up and use part of the story. Okay, so I'd love to come back to that, actually, and just dig into how we help innovators scale. But just stepping back to the first part of the previous answer, when you talked about standards and regulation, you gave us um, the example of the switch to EVs by 2030. Can you just just give us some other examples of like how standards have been used to kind of create, I guess, innovation within an ecosystem and create an ecosystem? Yeah, and so the one I sort of mentioned about fuel efficiency standards, that's kind of created a new, a clear marketplace for kind of constant improvement and innovation. We've got maybe a little bit of a more boring one, but light bulbs. So you might remember that there was a fuss made about light bulb standards in the US during the previous presidency. Now, light bulbs don't sound that exciting, but actually, if you think about it, a different kind of lighting technology actually leads to different fixtures and fittings. And in fact, it led to some companies even thinking about how they can offer lighting as a service. Hmm. Um, And that is actually a really interesting and different approach, which really encourages good environmental circularity. Because if you get, instead of basically Philips providing light bulbs, they provide you with a long-term lighting service for your building. That makes them even more interested, actually, if you're going to build a new building, they might even be interested at that early stage about the design of lighting solutions in the building. That could even be about reducing the use of electric lights and so on. So you, you see that from this kind of change of standard and regulation, you can get innovation that you might not have even expected. It's interesting you should give the example of light bulbs. I remember reading about IKEA, which moved from being one of the biggest retailers of incandescent light bulbs in, in Europe, if not the world, to move, switching to LEDs. And effectively, it was that kind of innovator's dilemma situation. And they switched to LED light bulbs. And of course, this has been a huge success. And it actually slightly changed the culture at IKEA and turned them from being a company that obviously has to operate at such scale, so it was fairly conservative, into a company that's willing to sort of take fairly big risks. So it was a kind of a, a mindset as well as a, a business sort of shift they had to make. Um, yeah, and just returning, uh, Alyssa, to, to the, your, your talk about innovation, you were talking about how we help innovators scale. If you could just dig into that a little bit, please. Yeah. So, you know, we've got lots of good ideas that exist, but there are a few different challenges. You know, when, when you get a good idea like an invention, the person who may have invented it might not be very well versed in understanding business, for example. So one of the things we do on our greenhouse accelerator program is we help very new kind of climate solutions think and learn about how to build a business model, how to do customer discovery. What are the things you need to do to kind of tell the story and make your product or service, a coherent offer that is actually of value to someone. Um, And I'm talking about this really in the commercial sense, but you can also do it for a not-for-profit. It might not be, or it might be a social enterprise. But in all of those cases, you need to really think about who's going to use this product? How will they find out about it? How will it be attractive to them? What other services do I need to offer to support that product in its growth and development? What kind of factors might I need to consider so that it can be scaled 
in the UK, but also maybe it can be scaled abroad. And, you know, climate change is a global problem. So the more that we can have something that's that's interchangeable, usable in other parts or systems is important. So that's the early part of the story. But then there becomes a kind of later part of the story, which is how can you help roll up and scale up as quickly as possible? So in the case of a product, you then want to say, well, how can I set up manufacturing quickly enough? And how can the manufacturing itself be sustainable? And where is the skills base actually for the people that I need and the tools that I need to scale up manufacture? And that logistics and distribution and all that part of it. And then in parallel to these quite technical questions are quite large social and cultural dimensions. So for many of the innovators that we work with, they are actually not just creating a new product or service. They're creating something that's creating a new market. (laughs) So then it's really, really tricky for those people to enter existing markets with products that are really future facing. And so for some of those things, it's more than just kind of awareness building. It's working like with your consumers group as partners to discover this new technology, right? So thinking about that in the construction sector, we have lots of people who are coming up with software as a service solution, lots of smart technology that can help in real time measure and monitor what your building is doing and then switch on and off heating and lighting solutions in a way that's absolutely much more efficient. And then you combine that with renewable heat, with renewable electricity, and then what you, you suddenly get is a system that's just way, way better in terms of its performance. Mm. But if you're entering into a sector where most of the buildings can't do that, they don't maybe have the right digital infrastructure to do that. And then they might not have buildings managers who really value that or feel comfortable interacting with that kind of technology. There needs to be enabling factors that help you scale up and enter that market. So, yeah, the enabling factors is a good phrase. And I think that like developing those enabling factors and then being able to build policy around them is clearly something that we've not been doing too badly uh, in the UK, certainly in terms of the way that we've supported sort of like entrepreneurs within the tech sector. Do you think that like we are continuing to innovate. When you look at sort of some of the kind of innovation sort of policy making that we're implementing at the moment, there was a big sort of push around the kind of the Cameron era to really sort of think about entrepreneurship and how that will kind of drive growth in the economy. Do you think we're, has there been a shift? Are we still thinking about it in the same way? Everything I hear from policymakers in all different political parties, uh, everyone's really keen. They want like innovation to be an engine of growth in the UK. They really recognize that. There's a lot, a lot of activity, particularly in climate innovation. It's growing and growing. Um, there's interest certainly in terms of the students that we work with. There's interest in the academic sector in taking these solutions to market. There's interest in investors in kind of helping to support these solutions. But I think it's still a little bit more more disjointed or too disjointed, right, to help at all of those stages, the stepping from the initial ideas into a business mode and then creating the right kind of environment for for flourishing at that scale up. I think the will is there (laughs) and there's lots of different actors who want to do it. It's just about tying the right pieces together. And sometimes it's just about really simple regulatory fixes. So we were talking to some policymakers about the challenges with very simple things like definitions. So there's really like not a great definition of what a compostable compostable material is in Mm. regulation at the moment. Lots of focus on recycling, which is really good, but it means that there are lots of new materials being developed, all of different levels of recyclability or not. I mean, compostability, some really excellent 
can compost really clearly under lots of conditions, others not. And it makes it, it's a challenge for regulators to think about how they treat those materials. But it's actually urgently important that they do <laughs> so that they don't, that the, these new materials, which are in general better for the environment than the existing kind of plastic materials that they might replace, they need that kind of regulatory differential. You know, so we need to kind of move with those things. And some of, some of those are, are pretty simple regulatory fixes. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with Alyssa Gilbert soon. So I'd love to just dig into the second pillar as well. You mentioned earlier on market mechanisms. I remember the Lord Stern report in which it was written that climate change is the biggest market failure that we've experienced. And clearly, current markets are beginning to drive change, but it's pretty slow at the moment. In your view, how do we better shape markets to deliver the change that we need at the pace that we need change to occur? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I'd say is is let's recognize what you just said, right? As Lord Stern said, that there is a market failure. So we should recognize that we cannot just let the markets alone do this work. They won't. And that's part of the problem. So we're going to recognize that. So we do need some regulation there on markets. We should kind of allow different ideas to enter the market. So for example, the voluntary markets that exist, and people will be aware of voluntary markets where kind of different kinds of environmental products are sold. And that includes their green bonds. There are also uh, voluntary markets and things like offsets where, or let's just call them emissions reductions, where companies will say, I'm going to give you a good quality reduction of emissions somewhere in the world, in some sector, and then you can buy that from me um, and do what you want with that emissions reduction. So it's good to kind of allow those ideas to flourish. But then quite soon after that, you kind of do have to regulate, create standards, and then follow through on some kind of regulation. We've got Ofgem, we've got, you know, off what we're going to need to have some kind of consumer body or regulatory body that also tells you something about the different standards of products that enter the market. In the past, there was a, a market in credits for emissions reductions globally called the Clean Development Mechanism quite a long time ago. And what we saw from that was that it did incentivize certain kinds of emissions reductions, but not others. It fell down sometimes in terms of social credibility or social impact. Um, and in some cases, there was some fraud. You know, there were other things. So, you know, a markets, you can test things in voluntary markets, see what's good, and then create regulatory frameworks for those things that you want to really, really boost. So just thinking a little bit about people listening who are working in organizations maybe they're leading organizations or maybe they report into someone who is leading the organizations. There's a lot of fear around implementing policy change, right? People are comfortable with business as usual. I wonder if you have sort of some advice for people listening who maybe want to start testing new policies within their businesses. How best to sort of start implementing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's always good to have a test period, right? So be clear to people that you're trying something out, if you're doing something kind of internally within your business. And it's always good to have several different stakeholders. So if you are someone who's keen, look for people outside your division as well as within your division who could be sponsors and represent the ideas that you have to people in their part of the business. It's always good also to see if someone's tried what you want to try before somewhere else. Hmm. There's quite a good community of people working on testing different sustainability and climate initiatives within businesses. And so look for those people and reach out to them. 
there's a lot more comfort in trying something out if people know that there's a peer out there who tried it too. You know, we're talking now about how do we roll out things and scale them up. So you don't have to be the first person to do something for it to be valuable, right? So looking to those people and bringing them in. And then communication is really, really key to bringing people with you. So don't just suddenly surprise people with a new policy. Ask people what they want, suggest a wide variety of things, explain why you're trying what you're trying, make sure that you're quite rigorous about measuring the impact of what you do and how people feel about it. And that should hopefully give you a position to take something something forward and also really know whether it's been successful or not. So I'd love to get a sense from you of how academic research becomes policy. Science and technology are sometimes hard for non-technical people to grasp. And obviously politicians are fantastically busy with a lot of pressure on their time. And as you pointed out earlier, are thinking in election cycles. How does you know, a piece of research become policy? Like, what are the steps? What are the the ways that that can happen? So I think it's important to know that it's not usually one piece of research that becomes policy. It's usually a body of research. Okay. Um, But it can be quite leading edge, like quite cutting new research. Actually, one of the things that's quite important is the interlocutors. Who are the people who stand in between the academic research that's produced and the person who puts the pen to paper on the policy and the politician who makes that decision. There are lots of people who kind of translate that information as it goes through. And that's really important. I'll give you an example, actually. One of my colleagues did a piece of work. A physicist did a piece of work several years ago on fluid dynamics in the ocean. And he was an expert in understanding how things move in the ocean. And he was interested Mm -hmm. in that purely from a physics perspective. But then he realized that he could use that same information to understand how waste, such as plastic waste, moves in the ocean, right? So then he thought, okay, well, maybe I could build a model that tells me, answers a question, which was a physics question, right? If you have a particle, you drop an item somewhere, anywhere in the ocean, where does it go? But once he had developed that, it turned out that that bit of research could actually be quite informative and could answer a question, which was, if I drop a bottle off the coast of the UK, where does it end up? And so that kind of information, taking that scientific knowledge and suddenly turning it into a question that was meaningful to an audience, and that's kind of vital, was the first part of the story. And then what happened was, in parallel to the bit of research he had and the information he had, you've got to get the timing right. There was a lot of interest in, you know, the public eye about plastics and the kind of waste that it was causing. So then suddenly you had this combination between research that was important and relevant to solving an environmental problem, but also timely with a view to the public discourse. That is the perfect moment to speak to a politician (laughs) because you actually have something can help inform a solution and characterize the problem at a time when they realize the public cares. And then what happened is we took the body of that information, combined it with a whole load of other up-to-date scientific information about the plastic pollution challenge and solutions to that. So what did we have in terms of engineering solutions, in terms of new and novel plastics and material? And what did that mean for what policymakers could do, which was like single-use plastic bans, incentivizing the use of other materials? And then that as a package 
backed up with references to scientific information was what we could share with another important interlocutor, which are the people in the civil service. Now, those are the people who were given the job of developing policy solutions, and they have to go and do a deep dive into the research, but they don't always have access to the information that we have in academia. So by packaging it up into a relevant and timely briefing paper written in language that's relevant to those people and tags on pointers to policy solutions mm. is the next step in the process. And then finally what happens is the civil servants can then offer a package of options to politicians, including information about the fact that the public cares. Yeah, And that's what leads to political decision-making. And is some of it also around the fact that scientists often aren't very good at narrative, right? They're not good at telling the stories and the importance of, or, or the significance of the work that they've done. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, we, we work with quite a lot of academics on their own communication skills. And, you know, some of that is because they really love their detail of what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and also feel confident about speaking about the detailed scientific area they work on and are so used to doing that, that sometimes I have to tell people, remember, you should speak about the things that are also obvious to you because yeah. <laughs> the things that are obvious to you are not necessarily obvious to other people, but hearing you say that as a credible leader in your field is really, really important. Yeah. So moving people back in their understanding so that they tell that from the beginning is really important. And as interlocutors and translators in this space, we also try to help by telling academics about the policy context. You know, what is timely? What decisions are policymakers making then? You know, helping them connect the knowledge that they have directly to the questions that somebody is asking. So since you spoke at Wide Impact in November, you've switched roles. Can you talk a bit about Undaunted, the new project you're working on, a new initiative around climate innovation? Yeah, so I've, I've been for many years director of policy at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial. Um, but now I've moved on to become the director of innovation. And that's really working on what we were talking about in the early part of this conversation. How can we support the creation and the successful scale up and deployment of innovative ideas to tackle climate change, be they products, services, et cetera. We are really interested in doing that for what we call deep tech. So these are solutions that require maybe extra lab work, maybe extra piloting and testing, and therefore investment at the early stages, because that's something that is quite close to the academic community and we think that is a public good. So that's something that the academic community should support. But because of my background in policy, I'm really interested also in making sure that we influence the regulatory space to really incentivize investment in these climate startups to attract what we call patient capitals. So investment that can wait for that technical development, but then is ready to help push this stuff out at scale, but also to help develop policies of the sort we were discussing earlier that actually create the market for these new innovations to actually flourish. So I, although it, it's new to me in some ways, these aspects of innovation, this policy framing, you know, I'm never going to leave that behind. <laughs> and, and also is part of the role connecting entrepreneurs with the research community? Yes, absolutely. So we offer quite a lot of things to the entrepreneurs who join our accelerator. And one of those things is helping connect them to researchers. And we are able to sometimes give them a little bit of financial support to help connect them back to researchers to continue their quest for improving their products and sometimes to test or answer questions that arise in the product development phase. Innovation, I think, has become something of an empty word to some degree because every politician talks about innovation solving all kinds of problems i'm interested to get how your sense i'm curious of how you think about it so i guess my colleague richard describes innovation as 
good new ideas applied usefully, which is, mm. you know, quite quite a nice way to think about it because we think about innovation as also being something you can do in policy, doing something new that affects a useful change. But I think, you know, to me, at the heart of innovation is creativity. And that's being bold and different, doing something new that can make a significant difference. It's really nice when you work with the kind of innovators that we work with because it makes it real every day. You know, you speak to someone and you see what they're doing. They're creating a new plastic product, a plastic-like product from algae, or they're using um, one of our innovators created an AI using his engineering expertise that can help identify problems with steel manufacturing early enough in the process that you can save about, you know, 20% of the energy and the cost of making your steel. And, you know, when you see people doing these things, it becomes real. Like someone had an idea, they connected lots of different things. It makes a real difference. But it's, it's also a mindset of being willing to try to do things in a new way. So I spoke earlier about the construction sector, for example. Construction companies build buildings the same way again and again and again, and daring to use new materials, new approaches to construction, thinking differently about the lifetime of a building or its recyclability or circularity. That's what we mean by something innovative. And it involves lots of different people. It involves lots of different collaboration. Um, and it involves thinking, as I said before, about social and cultural dimensions as well as technical dimensions. And just looking forward, Alyssa, We've got real-time constraints when it comes to climate. You know, we're talking about seven or eight years. How do you really think, if we, if we were to try something new, maybe, try something different, how could we really just throw kind of everything at innovating in this space, you know, across the private sector and the public sector? If you were just given the opportunity to create the perfect conditions for this, how best to go about it? That's a great question. I think that we really need to empower more people to be able to be innovators. So an example I like to give is like a local government structure. So we have lots of things that I think can be implemented really well at a community level or a local government level. If we combine what we know about good quality planning for health, well-being, and social impact and climate, what we know well about innovative methods of transport and construction and waste management. These are, Waste management, that's something the local government is associated with. If you think about that in a community way, and you actually were to empower the local community to do something really, really different, that could be quite exciting. And you, you spoke earlier before also about what happens within companies. So any kind of big organization has a bit of an inertia. But if you can empower innovative leaders within those organizations to make the most of what's out there, then I think we could move faster. So kind of less top down, more middle management out. I don't know. That's a bit of a boring message, empower middle management. <laughs> um, but I think, I think for me also, there's a really important global dimension to this, which is that things are moving quite well in the UK. I mean, they're still probably slower than we need. But as I said there's a kind of interest across all of the groups that you'd need there to be interest. It's much harder mm -hmm. in other parts of the world. And when I talk about empowering, I really would like us to be helping to empower people in other parts of the world. I don't think it's appropriate to go and do this for other people because, as I said before, context is key. Bringing people with you is key. But one of the things we'd like to do is, you know, work with universities in other parts of the world, particularly the Global South, who are interested in housing innovators and climate innovators, and going over there and working with them just on the infrastructure and the approach that we've taken, finding people who, have, who are like-minded in those parts of the world to drive innovation 
um, faster there. And there's, there's just so much cool stuff happening. So many interested people. It's about connecting the dots. I think you're right. I mean, pretty much everyone I've spoken to in this series has, has, has said something fairly similar, which is like, this is about connecting the dots and finding ways in which we can really sort of drive progress in a very kind of interdisciplinary way. And, uh, you know, there is no silver bullet. There are going to be need to be multiple breakthroughs, multiple innovations, massive transfer of capital. It, it's tough, but um, you could come back and speak with us again at some point, Alyssa. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me this time. Wired Foresight is a Condé Nast Entertainment production. Jessica Taylor is our managing producer. Emily Elias is our producer. Annalise Begent is our production assistant. Jake Loomis is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Hannah Brewer, Jordan Bell, Peyton Hayes and Nico Steele. I'm your host, Craig Williams. We'll be back next week with a conversation with Arnavaz Shatter from Vertical Farming Company in Farm. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>